First you told us only through you could we know God And if we dared to question, he wouldn't spare the rod For you we worked the soil, for you we dug the moors For you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars Now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do You say the world around us belongs fairly to the few But about six billion people no doubt will agree This world is our home not your property, it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who wouldn't close the land all around the earth, our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on these shores, but because you own the money, you see that it's all yours We laid the phone lines and the pipelines And then right before our eyes You see these things are taxes paid for You now will privatize Privatize the hospitals Privatize the schools Privatize the prisons For all those who break your rules And preparing for the day When all the wells run dry You see you own the very rain That falls down from the sky But it's the commons Our right of birth water all around the earth our future is your downfall and he cut this ball and shame you who sacrificed the public good for your private gain you claim to own the harvest with your terminator seeds you claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds you claim to own our culture the opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and of the hosts and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Good evening, and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for March 17th, 2022. Corporations and Democracy examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with truer democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today's program was initiated by a recent article that caught our attention titled Crack down on Russian oligarchs by cracking down on U.S. tax havens. While other EU countries have been increasing, the, or increasing transparency and cracking down on kleptocratic capital, the U.S. is a laggard. Well, the article explains how our country has become a major destination tax haven for uh, criminal and oligarch wealth from uh, anywhere around the world, not just Russians. And the U.S. has become a weak link in the fight against global corruption. So, it's authored by our guest today, Chuck Collins. He's the author and a senior scholar. He is an author and a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., where he is the director of the program on inequality and the common good. He also co-edits the website inequality.org. He's the author of the popular book from a few years ago, Born on Third Base, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. And his newest book, just last year, is called The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. So, let's have a look at the uh, the topic for today's show. I call it, What Are Russian Oligarchs Doing in U.S. Tax Havens? Chuck Collins, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Hey, great to be with you, Steve and Annie. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yeah. And, yes, uh, to you, too. Oh, um, thank you for that wonderful opening song, too. I love that song that you start your program with. Yes, David Rovix is the author. Yeah. 
Yeah, he probably does some political St. Patrick's Day songs, so we should have gotten into that. But that's our theme, <laughs> and it's about inequality, so that fits pretty well. Um, so we're going to be talking about oligarchs, and with this really horrendous war in, in the Ukraine, there's sanctions being leveled against the Russian oligarchs, so everybody's hearing all about oligarchs right now. Um, but they're not just Russian oligarchs. Most of the oligarchs are in the United Kingdom and the United States, right? So can you give us an overview of where one might find all these oligarchs? Well, let's, uh, let's start by talking, what, what is an oligarch? To me, the definition is someone with wealth, plus power uh that's really an oligarch so someone with sub- substantial wealth uh of course the billionaires but probably with people with you know 30 50 million dollars or more start to use their wealth and power to rig the rules in their favor and uh you know but we know that there's some you know 2700 billionaires around the world but as you point out most of them are concentrated in the united states and in the european countries that's where most of the concentrated wealth is. Uh, but it's fascinating that people are really, you know, focusing on the Russian oligarchs as a pressure point. And I think it's probably a good pressure point because you don't want to do sanctions that sort of harm the Russian people who have already had their wealth looted by these Russian oligarchs. This is a way short of a military intervention short of a sanction that hurts uh, a wide population to really target uh, the people who are closest to, to Putin. So if, if a lot of the oligarchs are over in the United States, how did we get so many oligarchs here? How did that happen? Well, we, we have, uh, you know, the highest level of inequality of any industrialized country for the last 30, 40 years, huge amounts of the wealth has been sort of funneling up, gushing upward. Um, so, yeah, the United States, we have 750 billionaires. We have almost a third of all the billionaires in the world here in the U.S. Um, and they use their wealth and power, uh, and that's what we're living through right now. And so this is an oligarch-friendly country, it would appear. Uh, you also point out that there's uh, some weaker points in the chain here, like some of the states are really making a lot of their um, annual budgets off of these kind of uh, tax havens for the super-rich. Uh, which states are those? Tell us about uh, where all this is happening inside the U.S. Yeah, one, one of the uh, revelations in the last year, uh, a, a giant leak called the Pandora Papers, exposed that the U.S. is a tax haven. Now, most people, when you hear offshore tax haven, you think of like the the Cayman Islands, some sandy little uh, beach island, the British Virgin Islands, Bermuda. But what we learned from these, these secret uh, leaks is that a lot of wealthy people from around the world, uh, if you're an African dictator and you've stolen money from your own people or you're a Brazilian orange juice magnet or whatever, you move money out of your own country and you bring it here to the United States. And you often stop in Delaware where you can incorporate a limited liability company without having to disclose who the real beneficial owners are, who who really benefits from the ownership of this company. Um, So Delaware is a weak link. Uh, South Dakota is a very attractive destination if you want to create trusts and what they call dynasty trusts that exist in perpetuity uh 
Um, so if you're a billionaire and you want to put your money outside the reach of of uh, tax authorities or people from other countries, um, you you create trusts in states like Delaware and New Hampshire and Wyoming. So is Delaware the only state that has the uh, the secrecy, or the other ones do also, or you know how does that work between the fifty states? Delaware is probably the most attractive state. There are a couple other states like Wyoming and Nevada that also sort of have anonymous shell companies. But Delaware's whole legal system, its state, it, it, going back to its formation, it's really been kind of the most corporate-friendly state. They have a special judiciary that's sort of corporate-friendly. Um, and even law enforcement cannot crack the nut. Uh, and so if you're, you know, and, and you know, we have learned some things about Delaware limited liability companies. When the truth comes out in lawsuits and that sort of thing, we learn that mm-hmm. uh, people who are running, you know, um, El Chapo, the, the narco trafficker from Mexico, mm-hmm. or Donald Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, will run the hush money for Stormy Daniels through his Delaware LLC or mm-hmm. uh, or child pornography websites and companies will be incorporated in Delaware. So, we know that that's the destination. If you want to hide from law enforcement, that's where you go. Mm-hmm. And it's really so widespread. You say in your book that one half of U.S. corporations are registered in Delaware. That's huge. Yes, uh, and that's partly also because Delaware doesn't tax those companies, so they they create they make it very very attractive for a company, a multinational company, to locate in Delaware. It makes up a huge part of their budget, so I imagine the other states are looking at this going, hey, <laughs> try this too. Like uh, Nevada, I think, has got some ambitions, and uh, Alaska maybe. That's right. There's a little bit of a a race to the bottom of who will lower their standards to attract corporations. Uh, but But a lot of states, including like the neighboring states like Pennsylvania, are really mad at Delaware because – uh, companies will reincorporate across the border, uh, or Delaware will aggressively, uh, you know, when when people have unclaimed funds, you know, like uh, somebody, I send you a money gram and you never claim it, and it's just the money is in limbo. Delaware will come in, even though Del, even because the company's incorporated in Delaware, they will claim those funds. So the taxpayers of Delaware uh, benefit from the fact that. The state uh, attracts all these corporate registrations and has a whole sort of business around coddling corporations and giving them safe harbor from from lawsuits and accountability. Going back a few minutes, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, oligarchs versus you know the the mass populace in any particular country where, where they're located. And and one of the uh, questions that came up to me recently, and this is regarding uh, Russia and Ukraine, for example, is that the um, uh, you know how much uh, the oligarchs' money is already out of the country and in Western currencies. So how do sanctions really affect them versus the masses? Well, that's a good point. Well, it's an, it's estimated that half of the wealth of you know, sort of the 50 biggest Russian oligarchs is, as you point out, Steve, already outside of Russia. Okay. Um, but the reason the sanctions work is because uh, those assets are in yachts, private jets, 
bank accounts and real estate and other assets. Mm-hmm. And so countries like like England, the United Kingdom are freezing oligarch assets, in some cases threatening to expropriate them. So the mayor of London has said, look, you know, there's a, there's a neighborhood actually in, in London. Uh, I've actually visited and walked around. It's where it, they call it a London grad, <laughs> jokingly, because there's so much Russian welfare. And it's not that the Russians are even living there. It's just they've parked their money there. Um, and, and the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has said, eh, you know what, let's, uh, let's, we'll take those properties, sell them and, and use the funds for affordable housing for people who live in London. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's why those oligarchs are vulnerable. And, and, and the reason it's a great pressure point on Putin is because these oligarchs are close to Putin. Putin himself is an oligarch. He may be among the wealthiest people on the planet. We don't know. Part of what he does is he takes his asset holdings and he gives them to his closest associates. There's nothing on paper, but he basically may have, he has his own yachts and villas in the, in, in Monaco and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. all under the names of his oligarch friends. So by freezing those assets, it really does uh, irritate the oligarchs. And some of them have been very outspoken, starting to speak out against the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, are putting pressure on Putin to say, hey, look, this is bad for bad for us. Um, so it's it's an effective strategy. Uh, you know, some of the oligarchs have probably already figured out how to avoid sanctions and have sort of sanction proofed themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh anticipating this day but it's still making some of them very very nervous yeah the washington post did a very eye-catching graphic of uh, all of the russian oligarchs mansions that's the a dozen of them or so around central park um but i'm just wondering here we are again with the russians and aren't there a lot of chinese and Saudis and every probably every country that has somebody rich has a has mansions here. Uh, you're, you're right, Annie. Uh, the, this is New York and and many metropolitan areas: San Francisco, Vancouver on the West Coast. They are the destinations for uh, this this global capital, and uh, real estate is really attractive because let, you, you sort of have to get into your inner billionaire here, your inner oligarch. You have all this wealth. <laughs> Where do you put it? You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, as they said. You want to spread it around. You want to have it in different asset classes. That's what the investors talk about. You know, you some are in stocks and bonds, cryptocurrency, real estate, jewelry, art. Well, real estate, think about it. You can buy a couple of condos in every major city. You've now you've diversified your holdings. You've spread, you know, half a billion dollars over several countries and several real estate markets so it's an ideal way to protect preserve your assets they don't care if that even if the property appreciates they're just trying to hold the value of their existing wealth and real estate is particularly in the u.s is a good place to do that well this is a that's a sore spot with me because the uh the articles talk about uh luxury real estate being a particular target but my concern is what I would call the average, you know, houses and uh, real estate, you know, the, the middle class ownership. 
And uh, you might remember back, it's about, it's about 10 years now, 10 to 12, when you know thousands, tens of thousands were homes, of homes that were foreclosed upon were sold to whoever had the money. And a lot of that money, I imagine, came from these same oligarchs, but I believe it's not traceable. Is that your understanding? Right. A lot of it is owned through these anonymous shell companies yeah. and trusts, so we just don't know. But Steve, this is this is this is close to my heart too, because all of our communities are facing these these extreme affordable housing crisis. Mm-hmm, indeed, corporate co- corporate ownership of rental housing, um, the out of reach dream of home ownership for many people. Younger people are just completely locked out of the stable housing market. Part of it's just a reflection of inequality in the United States, meaning that. Wealthy people are bidding up the cost of land and housing in a lot of communities. They're buying second, third, fourth houses before some people have no houses, any house. Then you introduce this global capital, this this international wealth, touching down in our communities and disrupting the housing market. And not only is it driving up the cost, it's incredibly wasteful. If you go to San Francisco, come to Boston where I live, I can give you a tour of all these empty, huge luxury towers. Think of the the ecological, natural resources, labor, and money that went into constructing essentially safe deposit boxes in the sky, or think of them as like wealth storage units, you know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like the storage USA you see out on the highway. You know, it's like, you know, working class folks get an empty garage bay, you know. The rich buy luxury condos and 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 it's you know they use ener- tremendous amounts of energy here in boston we have a whole luxury building that they had to build a, a, a new gas pipeline just to service this huge empty building <laughs> okay. so everybody can flip on their you know gas ignition fireplaces in their luxury tower you know when they're there um so it's just a huge waste of land labor and resource uh to build housing that will never be fully occupied. You know, you touched on the Panama Papers, and something that might be kind of fun to talk about is how do you find out about all this? Because it's so super secret, and it's under so many layers of disguise. How do you find out about this? You know, a lot of what we've learned, Annie, is from leaks, is from people inside these wealth management firms who leak data. So the Panama Papers came from one law firm in Panama, Mossack Fonseca, and the and the person who leaked that data has never been found out. Uh, but it revealed it sort of unmasked this whole global system of wealth hiding. And uh, I was fortunate to work with the team that released the Pandora Papers that came out on October third, you know, just last fall. That was based on fourteen leaks from wealth management, wealth service firms around the world. Unfortunately, none of them were in the U.S. Uh, we could use a good leak or two here in the U.S. to just sort of <laughs> focus our attention. Um, but but the, the impact of the Pandora Papers was amazing because, and, and uh, I got to work with journalists from Mexico and Brazil and Spain and Argentina, and they all had wealthy people from their country bringing wealth to the United States. And they're all asking me why 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 south dakota why the united states why 
you know, and we, so I was in working with a lot of these courageous reporters, uh, part of this international consortium of investigative journalists. They, and they are the people now, they, they are, you know, every month they're getting a new leak. So it's interesting to think about this. The system is cracking a little bit from inside, meaning there are people working in these wealth management firms and law firms who know what they're doing is harmful to the rest of the world, and they're willing to risk their lives and livelihoods to leak this data so the rest of the world can see the picture. So that's how we know what we know. One of the most dramatic leaks, I think, is the Luanda leak from Angola. You talk about how these kind of super rich tax havens, or I should say storage units, <laughs> wealth storage units, uh, they, they harm the poor countries very much. Yeah, and I, I think this is the mechanism. The, this hidden wealth system globally is the mechanism by which the wealth of the global south is plundered, where the traditional colonial relationships continue. So in the case of the Luanda leaks, the wealthiest woman in Africa, Isabel de Santos, daughter of the many-year dictator of Angola, he spirited probably an estimated $2 billion out of Angola. This is the wealth of the people of Angola. You know, uh, she would create companies that would, you know, sell utility. You know, she was sort of a broker. And, you know, these, these particularly in Africa, these countries have lots of natural resources. So she would broker the sales of those resources and skim off hundreds of billions of dollars with with the help, and it's really important to point out that these wealthy people have are surrounded by enablers, by what we call the wealth defense industry. But they're the attorneys, and the, in in the case of the Luanda leaks, it's the Price Waterhouse Cooper PwC, Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey. These firms are helping these oligarchs design shell companies, design strategies to minimize tax and move money out of the country. Um, so if you care about poverty in the global south, if you care about poverty anywhere, we should be very concerned about how this system sort of allows the theft of the commons. You know, this is the commons, the wealth of the commons in all these societies being siphoned away. Um, so it's you, one of the biggest harms in my mind. You mentioned that as the the wealth defense industry. That's the term I want listeners to to remember there. And it's just uh, you know lawyers, accountants, wealth managers, and they'll take money from anywhere. Apparently, that's right. And 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 uh, you know the the book I wrote, the wealth hoarders, really is focused on these enablers mm-hmm. because yeah, wealthy people have always are always going to find ways to avoid taxes, but. When they really get rolling, they hire an armada of professionals, tax attorneys, accountants. There's a whole industry of, uh, uh, of wealth managers, family offices. Their purpose is to help the wealthy accumulate more and pass it on in sort of multi-generational wealth dynasties. That's what, that's what they do. That's what they're about. And they are the fixers. Um, and if you care about global inequality, they're the agents of inequality in my mind. They're the ones who kind of make it all possible. So, um, you know, we can talk about the oligarchs, but here in the U.S., it's very important to look at 
the role of the enablers. For instance, there's a law firm, Baker McKenzie, biggest law firm in the United States, based in Chicago, 4,700 lawyers worldwide. That's where you're, if you're a Russian oligarch, you, you call Baker McKenzie, they set it all up. They, they have the relationships and offices in the British Virgin Islands, and they can help you create these shell companies. Uh, and the pressure is on them. And in fact, yesterday, Baker McKenzie announced that they are withdrawing from Russia. They're no longer going to provide legal services. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, it's, it's partly probably what's probably less about their principles and more about the fact that they're not going to get paid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in rubles. <laughs> in ruble, the ruble isn't, isn't what it used to be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, but, you know, it, it shows also the world pressure on the enablers is growing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really good thing you do. You're the wealth defense industry, and you even abbreviate WDI, which sounds like a military system or something. And in a way, it is, because it is kind of a form of economic warfare. And I think you said that there were 90,000 WDI professionals in this country. Well, if you think about the number of lawyers who work in sort of the trust and estate section, the number of wealth managers who work at family offices, which are offices serving the most wealthy families, accountants and others. You know, I actually, you know, did an analysis of that whole industry. Um, And, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of people who get up in the morning and go to work with with the life mission of helping the rich get richer. And, uh, you know, I've talked to younger people in that business and said, you know, can't you find another job? Can't you do something <laughs> that's less harmful? And I've talked to a lot of older folks who've worked in that sector who, looking back over their lives, are saying, you know, I, I wish I had done something else. I have regret. And, uh, and, and they're the ones that are probably helping leak the data. You know, uh, and a number of them were willing to talk to me anonymously for the book just to sort of give me the lay of the land. How does this whole system work? What are the tools in the toolbox that you use to help the ultra rich hide their money? Uh, and, and it's not just about vo- avoiding taxes or taking money out of the global south. It's, it's about avoiding accountability for criminal activity mm-hmm. uh, or ripping off your spouse, you know, after your after a divorce all these cases where these rich guys you know the wealth vanishes and uh, the spouse has no claim on it even though they've raised children together you know it's just appalling so it's this system causes all kinds of harms i wanted to take a moment to put in another uh, a plug so to speak for the organization you mentioned a couple of minutes ago it's the uh, international consortium of investigative journalists and they're out there on the web at uh, icij.org. And they did a uh, online report here. I've got it with me. It's about uh, 21 printed pages and has some graphs to put some things in perspective. And uh, one of them I wanted to mention, one graph, mentions the Pandora Papers as the latest leak. And it turns out to be almost uh, three terabytes of data about uh, the you know, oligarchs and these investments. And that was in 2021, but it also mentions the previous two. Uh, in 2017, there was uh, 1.4 terabytes of data called the Paradise Papers. 
And then the first one, I think the first one, but you'll, you'll know more than I, it was the Panama Papers. That was in 2016, so it's pushing six years ago. 2.6 terabytes of data about all these kinds of investments and such. So that's the source for most of this information, I take it, unless there's some other leaks I don't know about. Well, what's happened is that they have really become the international go-to place and if your listeners are interested, you should check out ICIJ.org, mm-hmm. International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. They actually just put up what they call the Russian archive, the Russia archives, ah. which are all the sort of, they've gleaned all of their reports, particularly looking at the role of Russians, uh, you know, in, in the hidden wealth system. But they're, they, and I can say, these are courageous people. I mean, the, if you're, if you're documenting the, you know, if you're a Brazilian journalist and you're writing about an oligarch in Brazil, uh, you're probably risking your life. Mm-hmm. And you're probably, you know, and, and the journalists in Mexico that I work with, they exposed 3,000 politically connected individuals, uh, many of them who worked in government, you know, who are taking money from the people, stealing money from their country, funneling it to Panama, to a law firm there, shifting it over to the British Virgin Islands then bringing it back to the u.s and buying real estate in miami you know so it's like uh it it, it i think it was the one of the founders of the uh panama papers said this isn't a sideshow to the global financial system this is the main stage, main stage. uh it's in terms of what's broken let me take a moment to uh, tell listeners uh, we're speaking with Chuck Collins. He's the director of the program on inequality and the common good at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. This is Corporations and Democracy. Our topic today is what are Russian oligarchs doing in U.S. tax havens? Or any other oligarchs for that matter? I'm talking about tax havens useful for anyone uh, around the world. We'll be taking calls here shortly. It's 895-2448 to get into the program. And, uh, and I, you just reminded me of a question that I had, one of the main ones on my mind, because you mentioned about, you know, the number of Russian oligarchs and such. Well, in this report from the, again, the uh, ICIJ, uh, there's another interesting uh, graph in here. It's a graph of the uh, layout of the world and the countries where most of these oligarchs come from. And there's a number from Russia, you can see, and a number from, uh, oh, Nigeria's in there, Colombia's in there is a big number. But there's the biggest number comes from one particular location in the world, which was a surprise to me, but maybe shouldn't be. So I want to I want to mention to listeners, just think for a second, where do you think, what curious country might have the most oligarchs that are doing these investments at this particular time, in this, in this particular report? And the answer is Ukraine. What the heck is going on with that? They have twice the number of oligarchs that are identified in this uh, uh, this leak as from Russia. Yeah, I, I was I was struck by that as well. Thirty nine oligarchs from uh, yeah. from Ukraine, twice the number. You know, it it's uh, it's hard to sort of figure out what that means. I think a lot of it has to do with where the leaks came from. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of firms in Switzerland and Luxembourg. In it, and you know what. Each country, the, the elites in each country sort of work with the same, you know, 
you and I are oligarchs, Steve. We say, yeah, you should talk to my guy over at uh, Mackenzie Baker, the law firm or whatever, you know. So people have a set of relationships that they kind of follow. And so the leak that maybe came from one of the 14 wealth management firms revealed a certain disproportionate number from one country. Um, But yeah, Ukraine has its own oligarchs. Actually, uh, there's a Belarusian oligarch who lives in my town. And he he, he just bought the newspaper, which is a very oligarchy Uh kind of thing to do. Um, Yeah, next thing you know, he's he's backing candidates. You know, he's but he's from Belarus. He's a currency speculator. Mm. He bought up three thousand acres of land, and he bought up all these businesses. And then we're all like, "Oh, okay, he's he's an oligarch." And then then he bought the newspaper, and we're like, "Ah, you know, he's now he's coming for coming. He's acting like a little Jeff Bezos or something." Mm -hmm. You know. So, uh, but um, you know, it, it. the, the important thing to really underscore here is an oligarch is about power. It's wealth and power and the power to hire people to defend your wealth. You know, and maybe in the old days, an oligarch had a standing army. Today, they have a standing army of lawyers. Um, the, uh, you know, and, and they, infl- they use their wealth and power to shape the rules of society. And, you know, the United States were becoming more and more of an oligarchic society where, you know, a couple hundred billionaires have huge power over politics, media, uh, philanthropy. Philanthropy is becoming That's something I want to get into. Yes, right. Please. Of the power and influence of, you know, uh, you know, we all like to think philanthropy is about generosity and, you know, it's about sharing and it's about supporting community radio stations and you know the, the the good works of food banks and others but for the ultra wealthy philanthropy is a way, way to reduce their taxes and maintain private power uh over their giving and they're not you know they're probably not giving to your community radio station they're, they're giving to things that advance their interests so even philanthropy becomes an extension of their wealth and power and influence. Yes, the articles mentioned uh, with the Guggenheim Museum as one recipient of, uh, of some of this. In matter of fact, there was there's familial relationship, but uh, the daughter of one of the big donors it, it was on the board for a while. Um, but uh, and then another one was at the Kennedy Center, or there's there's a few others, big recognizable names like that. Yeah, um, but a few of these oligarchs have have uh, declined or or left the boards recently for reasons having to do with Russia's behavior. Think think of it as uh, reputation varnishing yeah. or <laughs> reputation mm-hmm. polishing. So you know, yeah, if you're an oligarch, uh, you should spread your money around to some charities. You know, get a wing at the art museum and maybe a you know conference room at the uh, business school. And have your name out there, you know, and everybody says, oh, they're so generous. And they gave their money, you know, just like the Sacklers, mm-hmm. you know, of <laughs> Purdue Pharma spread their money around to all these art museums. So you have to go to the Sackler wing of a museum and they're like, uh, this is, you know, the tainted money of the opioid epidemic has funded this w- w- wing of the museum, you know. So, yeah, it's it's but it's it is a way the, to distract and deflect attention on how the money was made. And uh, kind of win some some virtue gloss uh, in the process. 
Yeah, that reminds me of seeing uh, at some art gallery the Enron wing. <laughs> the Enron wing, yeah. <laughs> Remember Enron? <laughs> crashed California's electric grid or whatever. And the, yeah. So you know these people that you're talking about, they're not just rich. We got rich people all over the face. These are super rich, right? And you're saying that they're working um, with power and money in their own interests. And one of their interests is dynasty building. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, when you're at a certain level of wealth, and uh, and I should um, also lift up a, a, a book and an author. There's a there's a professor named Jeffrey Winters at, at uh, Northwestern who wrote a book called Oligarchy probably 15 years ago. Great book. Um, and his, his, his view is, look, you know, there are wealthy people, there are affluent people, but you know when you when you get to like the thirty million dollar level and up, you're pretty much taking care of all your desires and needs. You've taken care of you set your children and your grandchildren up, and now it's about consolidating power, and it's about legacy, and it's about immortality. Even you know you want you how will you live forever? You know, and so you want to pass as much money down your narrow bloodline as possible. And so, yeah, you create trusts, dynasty trusts. You set set up foundation, family foundations, you know, so that the, there'll be the you know Annie's foundation will exist for her great, you know, great 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 grandchildren, you know, <laughs> down the line. So people get you know they think beyond their lifetime. When you're so rich, you start to think multi generational and dynastic. Uh, and you know, we we focus a lot on the Musks and the Bezos and sort of the new tech wealth. But in the United States, there you know, take the Mars family, the Mars candy bar. We're now in the fourth generation of Mars, which is a huge, you know, uh, $100 billion family, all private companies, very mysterious. They use their, they have, they have their lo- lo- lobbyists that, that do their bidding. And they've, you know, for instance, they got rid of the inheritance tax in the state of Virginia because... They didn't want to pay an inheritance tax, so they lobbied to get rid of it. You know, mm-hmm. that's like oligarch, dynastic oligarch behavior. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to the the death taxes? <laughs> the, yes. What? Yeah, they they paid a lot, a lot of money to rebrand the estate tax, which is our national inheritance tax. Which, by the way, if anyone listening has uh, less than twenty two, twenty three million dollars, they're not going to pay. The estate tax in the United States, you know. So just to be clear, it's it's a tax that falls on the transfer of wealth from one generation to the next, wealth above a fairly high threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but they they waged a whole campaign to eliminate the death tax, and they put forward you know farmers and regular folks kind of saying, hey, this is going to hit everybody. That was part of their, their whole misinformation campaign. Once again, to uh, to listeners, we're speaking with Chuck Collins and uh, about oligarchy and what are Russian oligarchs doing in U.S. tax havens. Uh, the number here, if you wish to call in with a question or comment, is 895-2448. That's area code 707-895-2448. One of the things that, that you've mentioned is that there seems to be a cultural tolerance for billionaires and I don't know if some of that is 
what uh, religious where you think that people uh, get what they deserve and if they're rich they must be really deserving of it what what is going on there why do why do people like for example our ex-president uh why can they brag about being rich in in the most bizarre ways and and people think oh that's groovy well i think you you put your finger on it there annie uh there's a strong narrative of deservedness so if you ask people why are some people rich and some people poor? Some people will say, well, you know, the rich work hard. They're more virtuous. They get up early in the morning. They work hard, whatever. And if you're not rich, there's some deficiency there. You're, you're, there's something, you know, you, you deserve to be where you are too. You know, and so that myth, everyone is where they deserve to be, is pretty powerful in U.S. culture. But, again, I would say it's cracking. And I think the pandemic actually... And the fact that there were these pandemic profiteers and the, you know, the, the wealthiest uh, billionaires in the United States have seen their wealth go up about two trillion dollars, from about wow. three trillion to five trillion, wow. over the last two years of the pandemic. So the pandemic has been great for the ultra wealthy. Uh-huh. Um, we have a call. I'd like to pick up on. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. What's your name? From where are you calling? I'm Judy from Willits, and I'm wondering if you could discuss a little bit the connection between Manchin in the Senate and Kentucky oligarchs uh, putting in corporations and businesses in Kentucky. And I wonder if you could then expand that to talking about other senators and House members that might be representative or dependent upon oligarch corporations and businesses in the United States. Thank you. Okay, certainly. And she mentioned Kentucky. I assume she would want West Virginia included. I believe that's Manchin's home state. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thanks no, very much. That's a really yeah. important point. I mean, I think, uh, and I think you talk about this a lot in the program, but I think I would explain this. Look, our political system has been captured by big money, by the oligarchs, by the most wealthy and powerful people. Um, they don't always get what they want, but 99% of the time they get what they want. And they use their power uh, often to block things, to stop things from happening. And the U.S. Senate right now is the place where uh, a lot of good ideas have been blocked. And in this case, they found, okay, in a divided Senate, 50-50 Democrats, Republicans, all they need to do is buy off one or two Democrats, and they can shut down any progress. So, you know, in the fall, there were high hopes that we were going to pass what they call Build Back Better. Originally, it was going to be a $4 trillion investment bill, green infrastructure, anti-poverty measures, uh, you know, a daycare system to modernize our child care system. And all they had to do is really buy off one Democratic senator, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, um, to block and stop it. If he had voted for it, it would have, you know, him and the senator from Arizona, Kristen mm-hmm. Sinema. You know, th- th- that's all it takes, and and that's deliberate. They 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 understand that to maintain control, you need to stop any kind of progressive reform. They just actually Manchin just came out and stopped. A personal friend of mine, Sarah Bloom Raskin, I was going was to mention that. nominated was nominated to the Federal Reserve Governor's Board, and uh, 
Biden, you know, she withdrew her nomination. Again, she 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 just is, uh, talks about how banking and financial policy should uh, address the climate crisis. Yeah, well, I mean, that, not, that was that. Yeah, well, I mean, she's yeah. willing to do it. I mean, she's not red hot about it, but she, you know, it's one of the things to do to consider is you know, financial issues related to climate change. And yeah. that's why Manchin uh, I can do that. Or as, as, as he would say, I just can't get there from here. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a second call coming in. Can uh, we take this? Hello, caller. You're live on the air. What's your name and from where are you calling? Yeah, hi. My name is David. I'm calling from Wallets. Hello, David. Yeah, I just want to put in a little bit of historical, historical context. Now, a lot of people have kind of made the con- comparison between the present situation and the Gilded Age. And at the time, a rationale for the status quo was called so, something called social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. I'm still hearing arguments that are very similar to social Darwinism when people are sort of justifying the status quo. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just that comment, and I'll let you go. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Th- thanks, David. Yeah, and I think, you know, Annie, Annie was sort of getting at this about our high tolerance and how stories and the narratives we tell about wealth kind of reinforce and one of them is you know the social darwinism is uh you know the survival of the fittest right the survival of the wealthy because they're virtuous and they've done the work and you know who cares what happens to the bottom 20 percent or the bottom 50 percent of society so you still hear those vestiges of social darwinism today um and that's you know that's part of how we justify you know how how do people justify living in a society with the kind of grotesque inequalities that we have. You know, if, we, if you walk through San Francisco and you're stepping over people in the streets and there's luxury condominiums near you, you know, how do you rationalize that? How do you make sense of that? And one of the found real mythologies is, well, some people deserve, everyone deserves where, to, where they are, mm-hmm. which is not true. I mean, there's structural inequalities. There's huge barriers. There's luck and good fortune. There's all kinds of things that have nothing to do with effort and deservedness and merit. And, uh, you know, like white supremacy, <laughs> structural racism, you know, like so. So there are barriers to equality. And uh, that, you know, that's that's where I think David's point about, yeah, there still is, like 100 years ago, that justifying mythology steve i want to piggyback on that a little bit it's like maybe this would be a moment when you could talk about is uh uh inequality itself uh, it's a threat to democracy and the social fabric i I would say that the the extreme inequalities we're living through now pretty much undermine everything we care about so democracy the idea that each of us have a voice in, in the governance of our society uh, you know, this, this, these wealth inequalities are fundamentally anti-democratic. They, they take away our vote. They take away our voice. Uh, but also the economy. The economy is harmed. It becomes more volatile and, and, and unequal. And it's bad for, econ- for the real economy. Uh, it's bad for social cohesion and society. It's part of the polarization and the social breakdown I think we're going through and the racial pressures and tensions is supercharged by these economic inequalities and down the list, you know. Um, so, and, and I even make the argument, this is bad for rich people. You know, wealthy people obviously walk away and get more money in their pocket in some cases, 
But ultimately, this isn't the kind of society you want your children and grandchildren to grow up, a polarized economic apartheid society. So my view is these, these extreme inequalities are, are, are threatening that which we hold dear, that which we value. It's bad for the earth. It's kind of locking us into this trajectory toward uh, ecological catastrophe if we're you know the, the rigidity that's imposed on our society by these inequalities so it's really i think in everyone's interest for us to reverse these extreme inequalities um what we were talking about a few minutes ago ties in with what, what's called the cultural tolerance for billionaires um you know how do you change that what's the well you know i think that's completely breaking down it's fascinating in the last two years um <laughs> 80, 80% of people believe billionaires uh, did not deserve all the wealth they have, that they've rigged the market. You know, we're in a society where there is a high tolerance for inequality if people, uh, if it's clear that everyone has the same opportunity and you didn't rig the rules or do something to break the law. But that's not how people look at these vast fortunes. Now that people look at the Jeff Bezos, they say, well, it's great, Amazon's a great company, but they like rigged the rules of the economy. They're 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 paying their workers less. They're extracting more. You know, they're harms, and I think that's where you know it's helpful uh, to to sort of for people to see that. So I think that tolerance for billionaires is declining, and that's that's you know we almost passed again. If Joe Manchin had sided with the rest of the Democrats, we would have had a billionaire income tax imposed on the fall in the fall mm-hmm. on these billionaire wealth gains so it's extreme it's extremely popular so let's let's celebrate that at least most of society understands the dangers of these inequalities and wants congress to do something about it and congress is temporarily occupied by the oligarchs mm-hmm. once again 895-2448 if you'd like to get in a question or comment that's in area code 707-895 and we only have 10 minutes uh, left, so we should probably start talking about what do we do about this? What do you think? Well, um, sort of building on what I just said, I think this is a really interesting moment, which uh, it's not that things couldn't continue to go badly, but I actually think people are really waking up to the dangers of these inequalities. They want real solutions. Uh, on this topic of hidden wealth, um, you know, it's important to talk about how the U.S., the role that the United States plays in this global system. But uh, at the end of 2020, Congress passed something called the Corporate Transparency Act, which requires companies to disclose who their real beneficial owners are. And it over goes over the head of the Delawares of the country uh, it would report, you know, to law enforcement, to the Treasury Department. So the whole idea of an anonymous shell company may be breaking down. We've been pushing for the regulations to include trusts and to include other forms of ownership. So that's positive. Enforcement is something that's really sorely needed. Uh, you know, right now the IRS spends more time bothering people who get the earned income credit than pursuing the shell games of the super rich. The IRS needs to rebuild its capacity to, you know, follow the money 
and and shut down some of these tax havens. Okay, we have two callers on hold now, so let's try and get them in the next few minutes. Caller, you're live on the air. What's your first name, and for where, where are you calling? Uh, this is Martin from outside of uh, Willits. Hello, Martin. And uh, yeah, hey, um, yeah, these guys like Jeff Bezos, and I don't agree with uh, having that kind of concentration of wealth, and I have to agree with the. Uh, the guest you have on that uh, it's undermining everything that we have you know in the united states um that's good for us uh basic blue collar middle class folks and uh, but be on that i'd like to make another point of you know trusts and things like this these are not just uh creations for multimillionaires. these are things that everybody can learn about and if you you can preserve your wealth for your children in trusts, and that's available to everybody. So that's kind of the weird thing where it, it is, you know, I think the billionaires would say, hey, well, this is open for everybody. Now, there may be economies of scale in terms of, like, going to offshoring your money to the Caymans or something, but, you know, trusts are not really that exotic of a thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, I think many people have over a hundred thousand dollars that they'll inherit from their families and uh that you know that probably should be in a trust and done correctly so that's my point and you know it's not just for the rich or we can all act like rich people and protect our money better that's about what i have to say <laughs> okay thanks Donna. Mm, bye-bye okay, yeah, great you. i'm so glad you i'm so glad martin called because i think it's important to point out a lot of these systems like a trust it's not it's nothing inherently evil here if a lot of people created a trust let's say they have a child with special needs that they you know expect will outlive them they want to make sure that they're going to be provided for or they have a you know they create a trust with a trustee to sort of oversee the the uses of these funds so there are good and legitimate purposes for some of these ownership what's happened is the wealth defense industry has taken those and warped these initial, these structures like a trust and created kind of almost new ownership models that have, are completely anonymous, uh, that exist forever, that have no reporting requirements, that don't, that are not registered, that are complete tax dodges, not just for now, but for centuries. Mm -hmm. So the ultra wealthy have hired their lawyers to take these ownership forms and make them work for them um so we're not talking about working people or even just moderately affluent people trying to find ways to have money to retire on which that's not what we're that's not what we're talking about people inheriting 100k are still in the middle classes that's typical you know maybe up sell a house but it's still sell a house in california you know maybe you'll proceed to your kids let me let's take the last call and then we'll do some uh some uh, um ending comments Hello, caller. You're live on the air. What's your first name and from where are you calling? Chris from Willits. Hello, Chris. Hey. So I'd like to make a comment on on if you're in a meeting somewhere where somebody brings up some sort of social program and, you know, your obligatory person's going to get up and, you know, the kind of person that puts their hand over their heart before they mention a book like The Wealth of Nations or such things. Most of them haven't really read it in detail, maybe Cliff Notes. And if they did, they usually only read the first half and not the second half. Mm -hmm. And the second half, if you believe in 
and sort of capitalist economic theory, free market economics, you know that the second half of that book talks about how, slightly abbreviated, if you see two capitalists talking to each other, you better shoot one of them because they're trying to put either an oligopoly or a monopoly together. Because competition is considered wasteful by many people, like, you know, when they're building the railroads and such things. And and it's absolutely critical that people understand that you're not going against the idea of free markets by believing that you have to maintain them free. Because if you just leave people to their own devices, they will pursue rent-seeking behavior where they're trying to gain revenue, gain income, without actually having to produce anything. And, and so it's absolutely critical that anyone that wants to argue from the sort of free market, and I believe that it's effective. I've spent time in socialist countries, communist countries. I spent four months in Cuba going from one business to another talking to Caller, I need you to wrap up. I apologize, but we have a minute and a half to go. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, okay. We, we have to go, but this is a wonderful call. Was, my experience was that people need to have an ability to get ahead in order to put the effort in. And so a structure like capitalism is wonderful. Indeed. But you have to maintain it fair. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay, we really only have one minute left, so I'm I'm wondering if we could even have time to hear Chuck Collins respond or, or whether we should start telling people how to keep up with Chuck Collins and so that you can keep informed. I'm, I'm gonna make one, one comment though. Just just this brings up a phrase that I'm giving it to you, Chuck. This is this reminds me of the difference between um uh, what's it called? Uh, free capital free markets and scot-free markets. <laughs> well, anyway, great, great, so, great it, end of discussion, and, and I would just say let's continue the conversation. And uh, I co-edit a website called inequality.org, yeah. which mm-hmm. is a place you can learn more about these issues, continue the conversation. We send out a little newsletter on Mondays and kind of try to not just be depressing, you know, really try to sh- talk about what mm-hmm. is it people are doing, what are the solutions. So. That's a place where you can check out the solutions. And the book I did, The Wealth Hoarders, at wealthhoarders.org, you can find information about that book and and discussions of how we're going to fix this together. So great. I checked today with a local, local independent bookstore, and they can get it uh, in a few days. And the weekly so. is inequality.org. It's a very good offering you put out. And uh, you're also, with some of your work is at IPS, that's the Institute for Policy Studies, ips-dc.org is another place to look. And this has been super. Chuck, thanks very much for being our guest and taking calls, and it's a pleasure to have thanks. you. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Steve. Great talking with you, as always. Great to hear from all those people from Willits. Yeah, yeah. All, all from Willits. Great. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red Donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.